when he said, I've been in ministry for over 50 years, I got to thinking. That's a long time. Uh, last March, February, when I was teaching in Germany to some students, uh, I stood up before these young people. They are in their teens and 20s. And they said, who's this old man standing in front of us? And I said, I want you to know I'm 83 on the outside, but 38 on the inside. <laughs> right? So let's go. <laughs> are you ready? Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'll be reading two or three of these verses in just a moment, but I want to prepare the way for that by some very simple comments. Uh, this morning, we're going to have the communion time. In the communion time, we reflect upon the body of Christ. We reflect upon the death of Christ. Uh, sometimes we especially think about this uh, at the Easter season and two or three days before Easter on what we call Good Friday. Some years ago, I was teaching in Siberia. And I asked my translator, Olga, who was translating into Russian, uh, how do Russians refer to Friday, the day Jesus was crucified? And her reply to me was this, we call it Suffering Friday. So which is the better designation? Good Friday? Suffering Friday. The fact is neither of those is better. It is a matter of perspective. It is better to use the word suffering if we're emphasizing the physical and divine pain Jesus endured the hours leading up to his crucifixion and the actual six hours that he hanged there on the cross. Notice I use the expression physical and divine pain. Isaiah foresaw his physical suffering and used these terms in Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised, forsaken, pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged, and scourging, apart from the actual crucifixion, was the worst form of torture the Roman world knew. Isaiah says he was oppressed. He was cut off. He was crushed. How terrible. No doubt about it. Jesus endured indescribable physical pain. But he is also the bearer of God's wrath. Isaiah also emphasizes that. He bore our griefs, our sorrows. He was smitten of God. He was afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities, cut off from God. The Father of all eternity, when our iniquity fell upon him, he cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here we are in this church service this morning, and we stand on this side of the cross 2,000 years since that day, don't we? We're under the influence. We're under the power, we're under the benefits of the gospel, the good news. And the good news is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. 
On that dark, divine, deserted Friday, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves in eternity. That's why eternity is going to last for eternity. We could never pay it. It's going to take all eternity. And eternity never, ever ends. He paid the complete, perfect penalty for our sin, made it possible for us to live in heaven with a holy God forever. With the Trinity, the angel redeemed forever and ever. That's good news, isn't it? So here we are. We might appropriately call it Good Friday, depending on which side of the cross that you're looking for. Now, I'd like for us, before we have our communion time this morning, to look at a brief portrait of the Son of Man as found here in the prologue to the book of Acts. And I'm going to simply read verses 1 through 3 and point out three factors from these three verses. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 1 and follow with me. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The first account, Luke, the author says, I composed Theophilus, to whom he also wrote the book of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, implying he's still doing and teaching here in the book of Acts through God the Holy Spirit by the apostles and others of witnessing to the ends of the earth. Until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appealing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. I'd like to make three statements about the Son of Man. And here is the first one. The preparation of the Son of Man. The preparation of the Son of Man. And I'm picking up on this in the first verse, the first account. That takes us back to the Gospel of Luke which was written to a man named Theophilus. And now in the book of Acts, Luke takes up where he left off in the gospel of Luke. As a matter of fact, if you look at the very last verses of chapter 24, you almost are here in the first chapter of the book of Acts. How, in what way was Jesus prepared? Think of the four gospels. There's Matthew, Four Gospels, not five. There are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In all four of them, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. But each of these Gospels has a different emphasis of how he reflects that humanity and deity. For instance, in Matthew, he's a king. In Mark, he's a servant came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. In John, he's deity, the very Son of God. But in Luke, more than any other gospel, his humanity is emphasized. And in Luke, he is called the Son of Man. Some 25 times in the gospel of Luke, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And the evidence shows that Son of Man functions as a title 
which Jesus gave to himself. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It never became a way for other people to refer to him. So here I am standing here this morning talking about him as the Son of Man. When no other people did this in the gospel, I, I, I'm bothered by that just a little bit, to be honest. I hesitate to use this title, except it is found so many times, especially in Luke's gospel. Think about his humanity. More than any other gospel, Jesus' virgin birth is emphasized. Something about which Luke, a doctor, a physician, would be very interesting. The birthing of the baby Jesus in Bethlehem is found only in Luke. The boy, man, Jesus, has his genealogy listed, and he goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. As a man, he hungered. As a man, he was homeless. As a man, he had no bedroom of his own. As a man, he was surely tested by Satan, and yet he did not sin. I'll not debate here this morning what we're talking about in the Sunday school class. Could he have sinned? The fact is, he did not sin, right? We don't have any argument about that, do we? He did no sin. He was the perfect, spotless, sinless human being. Please understand, Luke, who talks about the humanity of Jesus, does not deny the deity of the Son. He simply emphasizes his humanity. Luke talks about the deity of Jesus. At his trial, the Jewish leaders ask him, Are you the Son of God? You know what Jesus said? Yes, I am. And as you get through studying the Gospel of Luke, you reflect on the question asked in that opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus, are you really who you claim to be? Answer, yes. You are who you claim to be. You are the Son of God. You are the Son of Man. And on him, as the perfect man, as the Son of God, he took away our sins. He was not God and a man. He was not God in a man. He was God-man, the God-man. He was the only one qualified to take away the sins of the world. And he took them away, didn't he? So let's go to the second portrait of the Son of Man. We see something of his passion in verse 3. Notice in verse 3, to these, his apostles, after his resurrection, he presented himself alive after his... Any of you have the King James here today? You do. Henry, what's it say? After his suffering. Oh, you have, new, you have the new King James then, don't you? Yes. yes, okay. Anybody have the old King James? You have it? What does it say? After his passion. The King James, that's where I'm picking up on that word. He has his passion. Now, the new King James, Henry, the NIV, and the New American Standard Bible translate that word suffering. And that word suffering, passion, is a reference to the total physical 
divine pain Jesus bore related to the cross, leading up to it and on the cross. Now let's think about this for just a moment. It was not the physical sufferings of Jesus that redeemed us, and I'm not minimizing those, but soul sufferings. Mel Gibson, in The Passion of Jesus, talks about all the physical sufferings of Jesus because the church that he comes from believes that we need to suffer as Jesus to make sure that we do what he did to get our salvation. It was not the physical sufferings of Jesus that saved us. Jesus did suffer physically. Trust me, how much, is, how much is beyond our understanding and imagination? Now, listen, Gospel of Luke, we read about the two thieves on either side, only in Luke's Gospel. It's probable that these two thieves crucified with Jesus suffered as much physically as he did, and maybe more. We know that the thieves have the bones of their legs broken. Can you imagine the agony of being hit across the shins with a heavy instrument? Collapsing so they could not lift up. And the pectoral muscles would not let the air out. And therefore they died of asphyxiation. But this did not happen to Jesus. Not one of his bones was broken. Now, we assume, pick up on that word, we assume that he was nailed to a cross. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, neither one of these gospels says that Jesus was nailed to a cross. They all say, and they took him out, and he was crucified. That's all they say. They never tell us the process. Now, by deduction, we learn that nails were used. Thomas said he would believe in the resurrected Jesus only if he saw the nail-scarred hands and the spear-pierced side. And Jesus showed it. Why do the gospel writers say they took Jesus out and they crucified him? Because the Bible emphasizes the soul sufferings of Jesus, not the physical sufferings. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross. At 3 p.m., as 3 p.m. approached, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some say that it was 12 noon, God forsook him. Some say it was 3 p.m. because the darkness was there. While the darkness was there, I personally am of the opinion it was at that last moment. When Jesus was there on the cross, at that one eternal moment, God the Father forsook his son. And it was at that moment, our iniquities, our sin, our transgression, notice I'm saying our filth, our corruptions, our depravities, our guilt, all were placed upon him. Isaiah says, he bore the sins of many, including you and me, because our sin was placed upon him. The Holy Father backed away for that time. And then there's that darkness. It is the ninth hour. It is 3 p.m. It is finished. And he says, 
with a loud voice. I don't know where he got the energy, but that's what the text says, doesn't it? With a loud voice, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, emphasizing God is making it possible for us to enter into his presence. Luke tells us that that happened. Luke also states these last words of Jesus on the cross. Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head and voluntarily gave over his spirit. He died. It's over. The enemy has won. One out of every one dies. Jesus died. Death has one more victory. Now, victory is always good news. But the news of victory after an apparent defeat is even better. General Wellington commanded the Victorian forces in Europe at the Battle of Waterloo that effectively ended the the wars with Napoleon. There were no fast electronic gadgets in those days, no texting, no satellite, no telephone. How do you get the news out? Here's the, the war is going to go on in Europe. We're over in England. Everyone in England knew that a great battle was pending. They were anxious to hear what would happen when Wellington, the British general, faced Napoleon down near the English Channel, up on top of a cathedral. A signalman was placed with the instructions, keep your eye out on the sea. And when you receive a message, pass it on to the next signalman and pass it on to the next one and on to the next one until the news finally reaches London and then to the rest of England. At length, as the signalman was there on that Winchester Cathedral, he looked down on the sea and sighted through the fog that lay heavily on the channel that day a ship. And the signalman on the board was able to give the first word, however he did it. Metaphor, semaphore, Wellington. Defeated. Boom, the fog closed in. Wellington. Defeated. And that message was sent all across England. There was great gloom. A few hours later, the fog lifted. The signalman came again. Wellington defeated the enemy. Now all England rejoice. And when the enemy is defeated, there is always rejoicing. Yet as great as this news was, it does not begin to compare with the truly wonderful news concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died, but yes, Jesus is alive. Yes, yes. Now there is a third and final statement about the portrait of the Son of Man that I would like for us to look at, and that is 
the presentation of the Son of Man in verse 3. And I'm picking up on that word presentation. I picked up on the word passion from the King James, old King James. The preparation, the passion, now the presentation. Verse 3, to these apostles, 11 of them at this point, he presented himself, notice this, alive after his passion by many convincing proofs. And the Greek says, proofs you can't deny. Now, I can tell you that I'm holding a Bible in my hand. And you say, no, that's an encyclopedia. You can say that all day long. But trust me, I'm holding a Bible in my hand. You can't deny that, can you? And the proofs of the resurrection, undeniable. Not only, well, maybe the No, convincing proofs. The number and variety of people in such a variety of circumstances who saw our Lord after his resurrection give overwhelming proof of the fact that he did arise from the dead. There was a 40-day span from his resurrection until his ascension. And verse 3 says, during this 40 days, he appeared to them. Think about it. Had Jesus ascended to heaven just a few hours after that resurrection morning, three or four of his disciples saw him. Would anybody believe that? No. A good lawyer can take a witness who saw something and just make that witness say, no, you didn't see it really. But 40 days. Not just to one people, but many. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, other women. He appeared to Peter, probably, resurrection Sunday afternoon. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to the disciples, except Thomas, in the upper room. And then the next Sunday, to the disciples, including Thomas. Then to seven by the seaside. To the apostles, and more than 500, including James, half-brother, of Jesus, who was a skeptic and didn't believe in Jesus until he saw the resurrection. And to those who witnessed his res- ascension right here in our text. And the word convincing means proofs that cannot be denied. Some 45 years after this writing the text, in writing 1 John, John, who is here on this event, writes in the very opening verses, we heard him, we saw him, we gazed upon him, don't be offended, ma'am, we gazed upon him, and then it says we touched him. Not just the word touch, no. He was not a ghost, he was not a phantom. He was not something in their imaginations. No doubt about it. He's alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So whether we're talking about suffering Friday or good Friday, as I bring this to a conclusion, I'd like to make a couple of quick introductions. Perhaps you're here today and you've never personally 
had a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. I'd like to introduce you to Jesus in a very personal way. We must admit our need, admit you're a sinner, and because of your sin, you do not know God personally. Be willing to turn from your sin. And then third, this is very important, believe that Christ died for you personally on the cross. And when the Bible says he died for our sins, make that personal. He died for my sin. He did. Trust me. You say, well, I'm such a sinner. No. There's no such thing as anybody who's a too great a sinner. He died for the sins of all people. And then you come to him and respond to him by faith. Let me ask this question. If you were to die today and go to heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, that's a serious question. Someday we are all going to face the Lord. What would you say? Well, some of the answers might be, well, my good works. I'm just doing the best I can. I'm doing everything that I think to make me good. That answer implies that Good Friday wasn't even necessary. Think about that. Why should Jesus die when you're doing it? Wasn't necessary. And God is going to say to the person who says, I'm doing the best I can, my good works, God is going to say, sorry, you can't come into my heaven. Now, the next one is a little more subtle. Why should I let you into my heaven? Well, I believe in Jesus. I've trusted him. But also making sure I make it. I'm still working on it. I don't want to send away. i got to work on it. You know what that answer implies? Disappointment. Jesus didn't do enough. He did part of it, but you're doing the rest. And to that answer, God's going to say sorry. A third response might be, Father, I don't really deserve to get into heaven because I'm a sinner. But I know that your son Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He died in my place. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. And there's nothing I can do. By faith, I'm trusting Jesus. You know what that answer implies? You're satisfied with everything that Jesus did. Because God is satisfied. And to that answer, Jesus is going to say, come on in. The Father is going to say, come on in. Only, only if you're trusting Jesus alone, not Jesus plus, Jesus alone. Do you know him? Even as I'm speaking, if you're here today and you don't know him, invite him by faith to be your savior. And then I'm going to make another introduction. Uh, and these are really personal to me. I like these. I'm going to introduce you to two friends. You probably have never heard of them. Uh, the first friend is Auntie. This sounds like a lady. A-N-T-I. Auntie. Auntie is a Greek preposition. And we read in Mark's gospel, listen, for the Son of Man, even Mark talks about the Son of Man, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Guess what's word there? For to give his life unto many, in place of, as a substitute. So when you look on the cross, you see yourself dying because you deserve, I deserve to be on that cross. No, Jesus is on the cross. He's there for me. He is my auntie. He died in my stead. That's substitution. And the second is very close to that. It's the word we call huper, H-U-P-E-R. You know, you hyper this and hyper that. That's the same word there. H-U-P-E-R. I'm going to quote now from the NIV, and I refer to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him to be sin for who pair us. And that second word, who pairs, translated for, clearly implies substitution. Christ was made a sin offering instead of us. Christ died as a sin offering in the place of our experiencing. And I like these two, two friends, auntie and who pair. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if he died, who pair? What are we going to do now? How shall we not live for him? After all he's done for me, after all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best and live for him completely? After all he's done for me.